the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter number four. We're entering into a new chapter in our exposition and study through this book, and uh, certainly this has been an uh, insightful book and been one that's challenging as well. And uh, tonight we're going to be in chapter four. We're actually going to take the whole chapter, uh, verse one down through verse number sixteen. It all goes together. And uh, so I pray we can glean a few things that would encourage us here this evening. So Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse 1, down through verse 16. I'll read the chapter, and then we'll, we'll dive into it together. Solomon writing, and he says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who, had already, who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill is in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under, about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity." And striving after wind. A lot of text to take in there, but we'll come through it together. I've titled the message just better is, dot, dot, dot. And what you're going to find through this passage is Solomon's going to reveal some things that are better than other things. And we maybe ask that question quite a bit in our life. What is better or which is better? That's a common question when contrasting or comparing two different things. Life is full of comparing and contrasting things or events, Right? potential and opportunity. It happens uh, at all times in life. Really, we compare what meal we want to eat. You go to the restaurant and you see the menu and you're looking at this one, you're looking at that one, and you might be thinking, which one's better? Which one might fit my taste best at the right time as of right now, right? We compare which vehicle is best to buy if you're shopping around. We compare, we might try to implement certain habits or practices that might help improve or make our life better. Uh, when it comes to tools, you might think of a tool you compare as to which one is better, which one will get the job done best, right? When I think of tools, I think of golf in this, in this uh, realm, if you would. In golf, you have a bag full of several different clubs, right? And 
when you're golfing, you try to gauge your distance and figure out which one is going to work best for this particular shot. Which one is better, right? Determining which is better is a common practice of life in the world. In fact, Scripture gives us many direct statements about spiritual things that are better than other things. In fact, Samuel said to King Saul, he said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, rebuking Saul for his disobedience to God. Solomon would write in Proverbs, he says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. He also says, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred therewith. So better is little to eat with love than a great feast and a lot of hatred. So there's a lot of better than verses in the Bible. And so as we think about life in this world, this is what Solomon's been evaluating. He's been presenting to us this deep dive look at life under the sun. He's evaluated it all, and his conclusion is that all is vanity and striving after the wind. He's looked at possessions and pleasures. He's looked at wisdom and work. In chapter 3, we saw Solomon revealed the reality of the seasons of life and the experiences of life under the sun, the many things that happen to a person between birth and death. And he closed out the latter half of that chapter revealing a sovereign God who is over all of it and that he eventually will bring all things into judgment. So, now we come to four instances. He really points out four instances in this chapter where one thing is better than another thing. Now, some of these things are simple to understand, while some of them might be a little bit more challenged. You might just have to think and ponder on it a little bit more. But central to Solomon's evaluation here is life under the sun in a sin-cursed world. You must understand that. He's evaluating life under the sun in a sin-cursed world. So, three things I want to point out to us in this text. Number one is this. Better is avoiding certain evils than knowing or practicing them. Better is avoiding certain evils than knowing or practicing them. And the first thing he points out is the evil of oppression and tyranny. The evil of oppression and tyranny. This is what Solomon sees as he's taking in his view of life under the sun with his wisdom and as a king himself. In verse 1, you'll notice he says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Now, that certainly stems back a little bit to chapter 3 and verse 16. You remember what we read there and studied? He said, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. So he, he views where really oppression stems from, right? Places of power, places of position. And you'll notice that when, when, when wicked men rule, they bring about oppression against the people they rule over. And with oppression comes what? Suffering and affliction. What does he say here about the oppressed? He says, behold, the tears of the oppressed. The tears of the oppressed. What do tears convey to us? They convey to us sorrow. They convey to us affliction and turmoil and, and burden, right? Tears of sorrow and anguish flow from the oppressed as, as they are under oppression and they can do nothing about their oppression. How often this happens in our world even in various nations throughout the world today. 
Consider nations that are ruled by wicked men, tyrants. Think of the country of North Korea just for a moment. Do a little research on North Korea. And you'll realize that every person in that nation lives under oppression and tyranny. They are limited with extremely strict rules and regulations. Very, some of them that we would think very minor are actually threatening to their very life. Constant fear and oppression. Unable to even escape. You might consider, uh, e- even in a more uh, domestic way, consider maybe a, a woman trapped in an abusive marriage. Fear of trying to leave and escape, even at the risk of her life. That's oppression. You consider Christians through history, and even today in some parts of the world, that uh, are uh, under great threat of their life just for practicing their faith, owning a Bible, praying publicly, worshiping Jesus. We could list many, many forms of oppression, but Solomon says here, he has seen all the forms of oppression, and he sees the tears of the oppressed. And so that is the natural response for those who are oppressed under wicked rulership or tyranny. Solomon would also write in Proverbs 29 too, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, what do the people do? They groan, right? The people groan under wicked leadership. So Solomon sees this that's done in the world, and he takes note of it. But notice he says of the oppressed that they had no one to comfort them. No one to comfort them. How often, how many people in this world truly do not have anyone to comfort them? Anyone to help them, anyone to rescue them or deliver them from their oppression. More than we realize, probably. More people are oppressed than we realize. Why is it that they have no help or comfort? It is because of the powerful who are ruling over them. They give them no opportunity, give them no chance of deliverance. There is no help or comfort for them in these particular situations. We notice that what Solomon says here on the latter half of this verse, he says, on the side of their oppressors... There was power. That's why, right? This is what evil men want. And by their own depravity, they want to oppress. They want to rule with tyranny over other people. They want power. Why? Because with power, with power, when one has power, they can control and dictate as they please. Those who have power have the ability and opportunity to oppress those without power those who don't have power or strength. Now, sometimes oppressors don't start out that way, but they grow into it. They grow, grow into it. You know, you think of our own political system. Often people have run for office on certain principles, right? Only later in office to compromise those principles that got them elected. Compromising them in order to climb to the top where they get to a position where it's all about their own power all about their own prosperity, no longer caring about the people themselves who they are supposed to be serving, right? Now, no matter what kind of oppression may be taking place or where it's taking place, oppression of other human beings made in God's image, it is a reproach against the very God who gave all humanity life itself. Proverbs 14, 31, Solomon writes with his wisdom, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Now, make no mistake, oppression is an evil that Solomon sees in life under the sun, but it is an evil, as he mentioned earlier in chapter 3, 
that will be brought before the bar of God's judgment. And God will bring judgment upon all oppressors and vindicate all the oppressed. So with this view of oppression and affliction taking place upon people, Solomon now brings us to a truth that might cause us to scratch our heads. We might have to think about it a little bit. Come to verse 2 and verse 3. Notice what he says in light of this oppression. He says this, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Now, believe it or not, some have looked at Solomon's word here and think that he's giving, giving uh, justification for suicide or taking one's own life. Terrible thing to think that. That couldn't be further from the truth. It is not better to take your life to escape life's afflictions in this world. To do such a thing is detrimental both to yourself and to those who know you. Okay, understand that, that to assume such a thing from Solomon goes against, one, the context here, but number two, the plain command of God, you shall not murder, because suicide is murder. So there is zero justification for suicide, no matter what, okay? Understand that. What Solomon is actually saying, understand this, what he is communicating to us is just an observational principle in the, of this, that those who have already died are better off because they're not still here to experience the suffering and oppression that might be happening. In other words, oppressors can't oppress the dead. They can't do that. Because once you're dead, you're dead, right? You You don't experience what's going on in the world anymore. That's why Jesus said this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You understand, that's why Christians through the centuries, they did not fear what man was going to do to them. They could kill their body, but they could not kill their soul, right? Because the moment that the Christian dies, the body's dead, they can't do anything else to them. They've gone on, right? Pain is no longer. So we, we in one way, can be comforted in, in some ways that our loved ones who have gone on before us, they didn't have to experience some things that maybe we've had to experience. They've, they're, they're pain-free. There is no more oppression. There is no more turmoil, affliction for them that they would endure. We think just for by way of illustration, back in 2020 when COVID was a big scare, causing the economy to be shut down, people were losing jobs, and there was different forms of oppression taking place even within that, that era. I sometimes thought, how would dad have gone through this year? You know, dad passed away in 2016. What would dad have thought about all of this? What would, how would we have responded to some of these things? But then I would think, you know what? He didn't have to experience any of it. He's a lot better off than I am, even right now, going through 2020 and all these shutdowns and all the scare, all the fear and everything, all the oppression that happened with that. Dad, having already passed away, he didn't know anything about 2020. He didn't know what COVID regulations were. He didn't know what uh, mandatory things were within that, within that realm. He's better off with the Lord than here on earth during that time, right? So so those still living may experience oppression. Those who are not still living, they're never going to experience it again. And that in one way is a comfort. That our loved ones who have gone on before us, they don't have to experience pain anymore. Especially if they've been sick and they've gone through great bodily pain. Once they're dead, it's over. They don't have that anymore. That is a comfort and relief for them, especially if they know Christ. Now, from our Christian perspective, we know that those in Christ, they are far better off beyond the grave than continuing on in this world of oppression and affliction. You know, Paul once said it this way when he was 
He desired so much to be with Christ, but he knew that he wasn't done. That while he was here, the Lord was still using him to bear fruit. Philippians 1.23 said, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Why does he desire that? Because that's far better. <laughs> that's far, far better than this world. But the Lord wasn't done with him. And that's the key thing we have to understand. You're immortal till, the God, till God's done with you. You ain't going to die till God's done with you. And once God's done with you, then you can go on home. But it's not up to us to make that decision prematurely. So we understand this. Solomon points out another aspect in verse 3. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And well, why in the world Solomon say this? He's saying those who have not been born into this world don't know the vanity and oppressions of this world yet. They've not been born. They don't really know the, or, or experience all the pain and turmoil. Even, even young children really don't know about life yet, right? They experience some pain and some things of that nature, but not to the extent of an adult who's going through other things that, they're experiencing, that life brings upon them. You see, the suffering and turmoil that this sin-cursed world brings does not affect those who don't yet exist, even though there's going to be some that will exist, Right? I mean, I mean, there's kids coming into this world that they're going to be here, but they're not here yet. They're going to be born, but they don't have a clue, right? That's what Solomon's communicating. Many have thought like this regarding their own suffering and affliction. We've got some biblical examples of this. We all remember a man named Job, right? Let's go to Job chapter 3 for a moment. Job chapter 3, go backwards a little bit to Job. He's one that we can um, learn from here. We just kind of see in his own experience. Job chapter 3, look at verse 1 through 3, and then verse 11 through, thir- through verse 13. The whole chapter communicates really the same theme that he's talking about. But if you look at Job, understand that God has allowed Satan to attack him. So understand, this is all under providence. See, the devil cannot do anything outside of what God's sovereign hand allows him to do. So we must recognize the providence of God in everything. But in God's providence, he allowed Satan to take his children, to take his wealth, to take his possessions, to take his health, and even his wife, prompting him, just curse God and die, why don't you? Why live so miserably? But notice Job, in his pain, and his agony, his affliction, he says this, really his oppression from Satan. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let the day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Jump on down just a little ways, verse 11 through verse 13, listen to this. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. What's Job saying? He's saying, if I had not continued living, I would not experience what I'm experiencing right now. That's his viewpoint. This is about life under the sun, right? Jeremiah is another one who questioned his existence as he's enduring suffering under Israel's rebellion. His own people imprisoning him and torturing him. He's preaching them the truth, and and God told him ahead of time, they're not going to listen to you, but, but, but Jeremiah, he's obedient to the Lord. Here's what he's experiencing 
And he says in Jeremiah 20, 18, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Why am I living this way? Why am I experiencing this? You know, we put ourselves in Job and Jeremiah's position, and we might ask the same question, because we're human just like them, aren't we? Why is Solomon even writing this? Well, some books of the Bible focus on exhorting and instructing. Ecclesiastes is focusing on exposing the harsh reality of life in a sin-cursed world and how meaningless it is without God. Solomon's not saying our lives should just end or we should stop bringing children into the world. I've heard that. Well, why bring children into this evil world? That's really not the right question. God's ordained that we procreate, bring children into the world. If everybody stops having children, we're going to go extinct. So we need babies. The world is the way it is. You can't change it. He simply is noting an observation here that the dead and those yet to be born are better off because they've not yet or are done experiencing the oppressions of life under the sun. But the good news is this, that when we look at life through the lens of Christ, the lens of the gospel, the lens of a God who is sovereign in His purposes and good and how He works. All things, all the oppression and the oppressors will one day be gone forever. And even in this world of history, there is purpose for them, even though we may not understand those purposes. Here's the good news. There's coming a day when there's not going to be any more tyranny or oppression, but rather a perfect comfort, a perfect peace that will prevail for all of eternity. Revelation 21.4 tells us this. Don't you love this passage? This hope we have, this confidence. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. That's describing the new heavens and new earth, this eternal state in which God's people will abide in forever. No more tears of the oppressed. No more fear of death. No more agony and affliction. No more Satan, no more devil. No more flesh that we wrestle with. You see, the point here is central, that we as God's people, we need to embrace life for what it is and not for what we wish it to be, even though it may be tough. We must trust our Creator and daily live unto Him, avoiding the evil of oppression lest we ourselves become oppressors in our own ways. Notice with me, letter B, there's another evil here he wants us to avoid. Better is it to avoid these things rather than practice them. It is the evil of envy and laziness. The evil of envy and laziness. And these really are contrasted side by side as you look at how they play out. You come to verse 4 through 6, he points our attention to these. In verse 4... Notice that he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying that the motivation for many in this world concerning their work and their accomplishments and their success is due to envy or rather covetousness. Isn't that true? We live in a very competitive world and society, don't we? We're always comparing so-and-so with ourselves, or those things with our things. People look at their neighbors, and they want what they have. People look at their neighbors at what they've accomplished, and they want to accomplish what they've accomplished. Maybe in a different avenue, but still the same principle. And if not our immediate acquaintances, neighbors, 
It's the envy of the lifestyle that our culture teaches us to want, right? We're inundated with ads and promotions. You need this, and you need to live like this, and you, you deserve this. And, and so as a result of this, we're, 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 we're hardwired or taught by our culture, you need to accomplish these things. And so therefore, out of envy and covetousness in our heart, covetousness in our heart, what do we do? We work harder. We try to accomplish more. You ever heard that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? That's a reality in our culture. And so this kind of a person, they improve their skill and they work like a maniac all to get more and more and more in this world. Now, this is not to say it's wrong to have financial goals or retirement goals. That is not at all what I'm saying. That's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, Scripture teaches the opposite. Christians ought to be wise stewards. They ought to plan for retirement. They ought to do what they can to, uh, to, to prepare for different things uh, financially. You notice Paul's instruction here to Timothy regarding this issue. I want you to see this in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 10. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. And I think here we find the right balance in this realm of finances and wealth. He says godliness, but godliness with contentment is what? It's great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So Christian, if that's all you got, be content. If God blesses you with more, be content. If he doesn't bless you with more, bless, be content. But notice what he goes on to say. But those who desire to be rich, that's their will, that's their motive, right? Envy. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or sorrows. What do you notice? You often, hear, you often hear the saying, well, money is the root of all evil. That's not the right quotation. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. What is the key word there? Love of money, love of possessions, love of, of, of having more is the root of all kinds of evil. And so really at the core of that is envy and, 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 and covetousness. Later in this same chapter, Paul gives instructions for rich Christians, those who are blessed with a lot of wealth. He tells them how they should live. So ultimately, the Christians should live with contentment in God's provisions, and they should work hard looking unto Him, trusting His providence. So the key in our text in Ecclesiastes is this. The sin to recognize here is envy envy. Envy is a subtle sin that breeds discontentment and idolatry. Stephen Charnock rightly said this, envy is a denial of providence. Why is that? Because God in His providence has given you what you need for that moment, and to want more is to want outside of God's providence. Envy works against providence. There's a reason God included this in the Ten Commandments. Covetousness. You should not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, you don't need to be looking with eyes of covetousness and envy. Envy is a very powerful sin that will drive men to do many things that might surprise you. In our context, I think envy is one of the causes for this oppression, one of the driving forces of it. This was the case with the Egyptians, wasn't it, with the Israelites? They saw the Israelites growing strong, and so what did they do? They put up the pressure of oppression against them. This was also the case for the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. Why did they deliver Jesus over to Pilate and the Roman authorities? Even Pilate knew the real reason why they wanted him crucified. He said in Mark 15.10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knew envy was the root of that, right? Envy is a very powerful force. And this is what Solomon sees as the central reason for the toil of this particular person. He's working out of envy. And what does Solomon say of this kind of living? He says, this also is vanity. Striving after the wind is useless, it's meaningless, it's pointless. Now the opposite of being a workaholic because of envy is not working at all because of idleness and laziness. And that's an epidemic in our culture. Solomon says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's a proverbial statement here. What's he mean by that? The folding of the hands. Folding of the hands is used by Solomon on several of his writings to describe laziness and unwillingness to use your hands to work and do what needs to be done. Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 10 through 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Many people who are robbers and armed, they steal and thieve because they're too lazy to work. It drives them to a point of desperation, so they have to steal because they're too lazy to work. The fool is someone who is so lazy, so idle in this text, that he's not even willing to lift his hands up to feed himself or to do what he needs to do to get himself food. So therefore, he eats his own flesh. That's just imagery, by the way. It's not literal, but that's the imagery. He's not going to move, so he's just going to eat and destroy his own life. The sluggard, Proverbs 26, 15, buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth again. Wears him out. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm too hungry not to lift the fork to my mouth. I've got to eat. I don't, it's hard to imagine somebody that lazy. Making me hungry right now. His laziness, ultimately, is self-destructive. He damages his own life by refusing to work. And in refusing to work, guess what else he does? In doing so, he demonstrates his lack of love for his own neighbor. He's not willing to work to benefit them. You see, central to the life of a sluggard is selfishness. Lazy people are selfish people who only care about their immediate pleasure of doing nothing. Doing nothing. And living this way really brings no true satisfaction to their life. They're miserable. Charles Bridges rightly said in this text, and certainly no one 
has so little enjoyment of life as he who does nothing in life. What has Solomon said? We are meant to enjoy life. And those who are lazy are not going to be able to enjoy life because they're not willing to work so they can enjoy life. Verse 4, Solomon says, what is better? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. The term quietness refers to calm and patience, okay? It is contrasted with toil and striving after the wind. So rather than being controlled by envy to being a workaholic or controlled by idleness only to suffer, the person with a handful of quietness is a person who is content, a person who is at peace because he's living as he's supposed to live. This person has the right balance in life because in many things in life, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. You can be a workaholic and work for the wrong reasons and never enjoy life, and then you also be lazy and have nothing and not be able to enjoy life. This person, his hands aren't folded like a lazy fool. He has a handful of what he needs, and that's enough for him. And contentment is part of that. Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews said to the Christians, Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You understand what the driving force of contentment is for the Christian? The driving force for contentment is that you have the Lord. That's it. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. There's one central, uh, one central thing that stays the same for the Christian. That's the presence of God. So we should avoid the error of being selfish or envious to work to gain possessions while missing the quietness and rest of life. We should avoid the error of idleness that ultimately destroys a person's life. So overall, the verses here communicate to us that we need to trust the Lord and His purposes in the world and avoid these evils that we see, the evils of oppression, the evils of envy and laziness. Number two tonight. Better is companionship than being alone. Better is companionship than being alone. Now, come through this briefly. Notice that number one, or letter A, we see the disadvantage of being alone. There's a disadvantage of being alone. Notice in verse 7 through 8, Solomon sees another vanity under the sun. In verse 8, he says, One person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? What kind of person is Solomon describing here? He's describing someone who has no one, or rather wants no one, because they're only focused on gain, 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 gain. He works so hard and builds up so much that he doesn't even have time to think, where's all this going to go? What's all of this even for? Notice that he has no son, which means... Most likely he doesn't have a wife, and he has no children. He also has no brother, which means he either has no siblings or he's isolated himself from his siblings, his family. See, as a solitary person, he works his life away for riches and never considers what it's all about or even for. He doesn't think through what it means to actually be solitary or isolated from others. One commentator said his achievements... Although profitable, riches, result, do not satisfy. A companion or heir might be appreciative, but none is available. This is part of life's futility and appointed travail. 
which cannot be escaped. Now, this is not to say that it is wrong to be single. That's not what it means. For some people, they're ordained to be that way. Some people, it is preferred for them to be that way. Some people prefer to be single. It is not a sin not to get married. Some people believe that. That's just not true, and you're not going to find any Bible to support that. The point Solomon is making is that a person, this person is an isolated person who's really working only for himself. And the end never is truly satisfied, even with the riches from all his work. And part of his disadvantage is going to be found in this next point where you see the advantage of having companionship. Notice with me, letter B. We see the advantage of having companions. You come to verses 9 through 12, and in verse 9 he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Understand, this is a direct contrast to the one being alone where two is better than one. Solomon said of the one by himself laboring in life, this is vanity and unhappy business. To not have friends or family, that's a great disadvantage. But here, he says two are better than one. Now, this text is often used regarding marriage, and it certainly applies to marriage, but that's not the exclusive context of this passage. It's very general, just about companionship, relationships, having people in your life. Solomon's talking about relationships in general, that mankind is not meant to go through life alone. We're not meant to go through life alone. We're meant to have family. We're meant to have friends. And if God blesses you with a wife or a husband, you're meant to have that. You're meant to have children. When two work together, the work is done more efficiently, brings more profit. That's an advantage. I've worked many jobs where I thought I could just do this by myself. And as a teenager, I learned real, real quick that, you know what, I'm not as good at everything as I think I am. <laughs> I'd tackle things that I'd get in a bind and go to Dad and be like, Dad, I thought I could do this, but I can't do this. Can you come help me? So we're able to get it done. Same thing for secular jobs I've had, right? Try to tackle something, and, man, I need somebody else to help me. Two are better than one. We often tell our kids to clean up their rooms, and usually one of them's lagging behind, right? They don't try to get out of doing it. But what do we tell them? If you guys work together, you're going to get done a lot faster, and then you can get on to doing something else, especially if it involves a treat or something like that, right? Both plug in. So this is one benefit of having companionship. Working together is vital to greater productivity. Now, beyond work, we come on down, verse 10 through 11, we see some further benefits of this. He says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. What are family and friends for? They help pick us up when we fall because we are inevitably going to fall and struggle at some point in our life. And when we are down, we need help. How often has this happened in our own lives? Maybe you can think of an example in your own self. A time when you were down, you needed help, and you had somebody to help you. I have been there more times than not. More times than not. Whether it was physical, and I was sick and needed somebody to help me. Whether it was financial, and I needed help, and somebody helped me. Whether it was uh, some other thing. Think of all the scenarios. Help is what we need. And in order for us to have help, we have to have companions, right? Whether it's family or friends or loved ones or a spouse. There is safety in numbers. We always have the kids play outside together, not by themselves, but always together. 
We usually leave a window open so we can try to hear them because we've got that fenced-in backyard and they can run around. But if one of them's out there by themselves and they're swinging and they fall and hit their head and get hurt, we can never know about it. But if two are out there, guess what? The other one can help them up or they can run in, get mom and dad and say, hey, so-and-so got hurt. You see, there's a reason that God has made humans the way he has because we are meant for each other. There's a reason he wanted Adam to have a wife in the very beginning. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And he gave Eve to Adam, right? Adam needed a companion to help him. And so does every other person in this world. Whether that be through marriage or family relationships or friendships, we need companions <coughs> for times of need, especially our trials. Proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Friendships, brotherhood, sisterhood. Now Solomon continues in verse 11. He says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, some have tried to apply this to the marriage union of intimacy, husband and wife, but it really doesn't fit the overall context of what Solomon's saying. Solomon is speaking generally and most likely has in mind people traveling from one place to another in that day and time. When traveling at night, companions would rest close to each other, enabling them to better keep warm. All of these illustrations that Solomon gives really have traveling implications with their risks of being alone. Here's one commentator's illustrations of this, such as pits and ravines along the way, cold nights. That's why you need someone. Wayside marauders. They highlight the blessings of companionship in error or mishap, adversity, and hostility. And that brings us to verse 12. Notice this. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. They're traveling along the road. One, one, one uh, uh, robber might come out against them. But if you've got two, you've got a whole lot stronger chance of withstanding that conflict. He goes on to say two are better than one, but what's better than two? Three. <laughs> three are better than two. What's better than, two? what's better than three? Four, right? You could go on here. The bottom line is people need other people in their And this great truth is so greatly evidenced in the New Testament with the local church. How greatly we need other Christians in our life. See, fellowship in the local church among other saints is vital to a strong Christian life. We need the spiritual companionship of other believers. Not just in the sense of gathering for worship, although that is part of it, but in the sense of knowing each other outside of the church house. We ought to be a part of each other's lives. We ought to be knit together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how the early church was as they gathered, not just in one building once a week, but in other places, from house to house. Acts 2, 44 and verse 46, the Bible says, And all who believed were together, and all things in common, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. You see the early church communing and fellowshipping together with other believers because they needed it. Christians, you and I, we're the outsiders in this world. We need each other. Beyond just meeting for worship and the fellowship, 
We also need each other to help us when we struggle with our own temptations and our trials. How greatly, has, how, how greatly comforted have we been when we've gone through a trial, but we know our church family's praying for us. Not only they're praying for us, but they reach out to us. They help us in ways that we need it. We need our spiritual brothers and sisters to lift us up when we struggle, even with temptations and sin. Galatians 6, 1. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should do what? Restore him. Restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We're too prone to try to put to death our, more, our, our wounded Christians. Well, look at the sin they did. We've got to condemn them. No, we ought to seek their restoration. Someone rightly said the Christian army is the only army that puts to death their wounded. We see that in some Christian circles today. That's not what Scripture teaches. Now, certainly there are times for discipline in its context if there's no repentance. But outside of that, our goal is restoration, renewal, forgiveness. How much better is it to have companionship than to be going through life isolated and alone? That's the point that Solomon's making. Number three, and I'll be quick with this one. Quicker than all the other two. The first one was the longest. The second one was the middle longest. This one's the shortest, so hang on. Better is poverty and wisdom than power and arrogance. I want you to see, firstly, the error of pride and position. As we come to this final little section of Solomon's observations of what is better, he points out in verse 13 the difference between a man who is poor and young to a man who is older and is a king. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, many associate wisdom with old age, but that's not always the case. Sometimes old age can make a person proud and arrogant because they think they know everything. Now, by all means, I think we need to respect our elders and learn the wisdom from the life they've lived. I don't have much tolerance for those who don't respect those who are older than them. But sometimes wisdom comes from the younger. Something happened not long ago. I think I was discouraged about something. And Jubilee Jubilee saw that. She said to me, Dad, it's just the devil trying to get you down. Just trust God and it'll be okay. And I thought, where did that come from? Here I am, the preacher who's supposed to be encouraging others through their downtimes, right? And my little seven-year-old tells me that. You know, sometimes it's true that we who have grown and learned much in life still have much to learn. For this king, what his problem was is he was proud and arrogant because of his age and his position. Now, that naturally is going to come to us if we don't keep ourselves humble and meek as we grow older. But this king, he was stubborn and he resisted taking advice from others. Proverbs twelve fifteen, Solomon says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man does what? listens to advice. You see, this is a know-it-all kind of person. See, those who think they know it all, regardless of their age, they truly do not know enough. But this can happen to any one of us. And I think it's vital for us to all be aware of our own limitations and understand that we need to be teachable and always growing. Even when you're old at age in your life, you never stop learning and growing. Always learn. Always grow. Take in advice. Read, take in knowledge. And truly, the one who is wise has far greater wealth than the one who is a king. 
For we know the wealth and blessing of wisdom, right? It's better than rubies. Better than gold. All things you could desire are, are not to even be compared with wisdom. So we should always be teachable and avoid the error of pride and position. Letter B, we see the cycle of humility and growth. If you come to verse 14 and onward, you're going to find that verse 14, Solomon describes the cycle of this king rising because this king who's old and stubborn at one time was a poor young man who had some wisdom about him. Verse 14, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. He started out in a very lowly place, but climbed to the top. He at one time was a young, wise man. But he grew into an old, foolish man. That's the danger for all of us. We might forget in our pride the lessons of our youth. You come on down through the rest of the text. He says, I saw the living who move about under the sun along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's saying is eventually this king, he's going to grow old, pass away, and guess what? Another young king is going to take his place, and the cycle continues. And Every king that grows old and reigns, they eventually lose the favor of the people anyway. They're going to pass on. The next generation comes after them. The cycle would continue for many kings They would eventually be forgotten. And Solomon concludes about that, vanity and striving after the wind. So as we look at this text, better is certain things. Better is. Better is avoiding certain evils than knowing and practicing them like oppression, envy, and idleness. Better is companionship rather than going through life alone without friends or family, isolating yourself. Better is poverty and wisdom than power and arrogance. Be teachable. Seek wisdom. There are some plain observations from Solomon about life under the sun, and I think it's encouraging for us to see these, to follow after what is better for our own lives, for the glory of God, and not fall into the trap of the things that Solomon observes here that are not so good. So we learn and take these things home with us and apply them to our life.